All right. I, I'm talking about the Amazonic succession, and I've, I left off on the, on the back of, on, on page eight, on page eight. Very famous text from Irenaeus, in book three, chapter three. And I've, I've got it down for you. And then we'll, when we finish that text, we will go to. Uh, we'll go to talk about the about the uh, a somewhat different subject. All right, Irenaeus against the heresies. Okay, the back of page eight in the middle. See what he wants to do. His thesis. His thesis is this. He says there is no there is no secret clandestine doctrine. There's no private gnosis, known only to the initiates. Now, that's true, but it needs reservations, doesn't it? To join the Christian Church itself is to become an initiate into the mysteries, just to join. We still preserve the right, although we don't do it. We preserve it as a, it's, in, it's in the book. Although in the Antiochians, we, we don't observe it that way. But the catechumens are expelled from the church before the recitation of the creed, because they haven't received the creed yet. And when we receive communion, one of the prayers we say right before we receive communion is I will not speak of thy mystery to thine enemies. There's certain things we just don't talk about outside the church. Because, because they're family experiences. And one must have partaken of certain experiences before you can talk about them. People who have not talked about them, pardon me, have not experienced it, they won't have any idea what you're talking about. The Christian church found out pretty quickly that if word got out what they were doing, behind closed doors, the doors, the doors, tiras, tiras. The people they hear about what's going on behind closed doors. What do they hear? Well, they're in there doing cannibalism. They're eating flesh and blood. Uh, where are they getting out, where, where are they getting, where are they getting all this flesh and blood? Well, obviously they're killing babies. Well, where are they getting the babies? Well, they have the sign of peace. That's where the babies come from. I mean, one thing leads to another. Well, see, those ideas were actually floating around in the Roman Empire. And so whenever their emperor says, let's kill Christians, they say, yeah, that's right, let's, let's do that. You know, there's some enthusiasm for this. So there is already, there is a secret initiation into the Christian church. But Irenaeus' point is that this itself is quite public. Um, that there is, is, is not within the Christian church, there's not a, a few initiates who, who have secret mysteries the others don't have. I, I think it's still important to stress that because I've heard just the opposite since becoming an Orthodox, that there's certain, there's, there's certain great mysteries of, of, of the faith, in particular of, of prayer, that only monastics know about. I mean, I've, I know I've heard that. There are two traditions in the church. 
the regular tradition for ordinary people and then the monastic tradition. That's nonsense. It is simply nonsense. The monastic tradition is part of the it's part of the paralysis. It's not some special special initiate. The uh, the monk and the nun, they pray the same way other Christians do, but more intensely, in a more exclusive way. But it's still still Christian prayer, and prayer in Jesus' name. What Arrhenius is getting at is this. The Christian, the, the Christian theology, in principle, is quite public. It's open, it's open to everybody, and we, and we document it. Uh, and the whole business about the Gnostics is there's a secret gnosis known only to a few, and that few did, did not include the apostles, apparently. <laughs> okay, Irenaeus is stressing. The faith we have, we got from the apostles. All right, let's read, read this text. Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, whether by an evil self-pleasing, by vainglory, or by blindness, a perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. Christians getting together and started forming their own church. Notice there's a concept here that the church is something actually there. It isn't that you believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, he believes in Jesus, the three of us get together and start church. We don't have the authority to do that. The church is already there. We receive the, we receive the faith from, from that authority. He says it would be tedious to list all these bishoprics. Well, there's so many parts of it that Irenaeus that are very tedious to start with. I mean, so much in books one and two is extremely tedious because he's going through and refuting the heresies of these very Valentinian Basilides and, and Marcy and the others. Very tedious. I, there, were, there were days I was when I was when I first started reading Irenaeus, I was wondering I would ever get through it because it just some parts of it are so boring because of the, the people he's arguing with. So he's going to stick to one church, and then he changes his mind and goes to two. We do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also the faith preached to men, which comes down to, to our times by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its stronger authority. The Latin there is putiorum principalitatem, it's a stronger authority. There are people who try to give that a, a, a canonical meaning. If you do that, of course, what you end up with is papacy. And, and irony is certainly not a papist. Uh, but he has this, this very strong respect for the church at Rome because he had this whole succession of bishops beginning with Linus in his first one. Almost all of them are martyred. I mean, the, 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 first, the first 10 or 12 bishops of Rome are all martyred. That gives you a lot of authority. You know, you, I, I, would, I would take that very seriously if bishops start shedding their blood. I mean, I take that very seriously. <laughs> um, 
All right. Now, let me. Now I want to talk about the creed. You with me now, little one? I am. Okay. I want to talk about the creed. Especially when I talk about the, the creeds, relationship to baptism. At the first time you get the creed is when you're baptized. Um, and notice in, in, in those services where we do, do baptism, we recite the creed twice. The people getting baptized recite the creed at their baptism. And then the rest of us recite it again at Holy Communion. The creed lists those things, which are the core doctrines of the Christian church, without which you're not even, you, you don't have the Christian faith. You have the text in front of you from going back to book one, chapter nine of, uh, of the Treatise Against the Heresies. I'll just go ahead and read it for you. Oh, let me, let me explain to you, let me explain to you the, the context. In the previous chapter, chapter eight, okay, I didn't I didn't want to put it down because it's it just takes up too much space. In chapter eight, what he does is take a bunch of lines from the Odyssey and the Iliad and jumbles them together and gets a completely different story about every single character in the Odyssey and the Iliad. He says, he said, that's what the heretics do. They, 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 they jumble the scriptures together without any rule of how they're to be read. The, uh, the word, the correct word is to parse, to parse. Everybody knows what to parse means. Take apart. Take apart. Going into part and explain the structure, okay? Parse, by the way, comes from the same root as Pharisee. Okay. The Pharisees are those who divide. People used to teach parsing. Actually, I think you taught me parsing. So parsing means the correct division of statements. Are paragraphs, if you're reading people like Thomas Mann, <coughs> now that's what he's talking about in the, in the text I don't have in front of you, the, the, uh, the chapter that comes right before the chapter that's printed there at the bottom of page eight. With that, with that introduction, let me read it to you. Now what simple-minded man, I ask, would not be led away by such verses as these to think that, what, that, that Homer actually framed them so, so with reference to the subject indicated? But he who is acquainted with, with the Homeric writings will recognize the verse, verses indeed, but not the subject to which they are applied, as knowing that some of them were spoken of Ulysses, others of Hercules himself, others still of Priam, and others again of Menelaus and Agamemnon. I kind of, I'm, I'm, I feel very good, for, here's the father of the church, thoroughly familiar with the Homeric writings. This is, this is 
This is wonderful. A father church in the mid-second century, familiar completely at home in their writings. But if he takes them and restores each of them to his proper position, he at once destroys the narrative in question. In like manner, he also who retains unchangeable in his heart the rule of the truth. Okay, in Latin, it's regula veritatis, the rule of the truth. Okay. Why Latin? Because that's, that's the language this work has come down in. If you translate Latin back into Greek, you get kanon alitheus, kanon alitheus, the word of truth, which he receives how? By means of baptism. Will doubtless recognize the names, the expressions, and the parables taken from the scriptures, but will by no means acknowledge the blasphemous use that these men make of them. For though he will acknowledge the gems, he will certainly not receive the fox instead of the likeness of the king. He's talking there about, about uh, the, the arranging of, uh, of small pieces of gems to make figures. But what he has restored, but when he has restored every one of the expressions quoted to its proper position and has fitted it to the body of the truth, he will lay bare and prove to be without any foundation the figment of these heretics. Now notice here that the creed is the canon. It's the rule. The word canon means a measuring stick. That which takes the measure of everything else. The canon of truth, the regula the regula veritatis is the creed, which is the standard by which the scriptures are to be interpreted. So if one finds an interpretation of scripture that's outside the rule of the, of the creed, which is the faith of the people of God, then he's misinterpreting the scriptures. So what does the church hand on? The church hands on the scriptures as interpreted. As interpreted. Everybody with me on that? God bless you. The tradition of the church, the parodists of the church, is embodied in the scriptures as interpreted. Interpreted by whom? By the tradition itself. I, w I think I may have told you this, or I, I, perhaps I said it in Sunday school. I, uh, I googled apostolic tradition a couple of weeks ago, and the first article that came up on my Google search was the heresy of apostolic tradition. <laughs> the, and the author was finding all kinds of heresies in the fathers of the second century, things that were opposed to the sacred scriptures. What I find really quite ironic about that is he got those scriptures from the fathers of the second century. I think they were in a much better position to understand what they meant rather than somebody living 2,000 years later. Now, it is this canon, 
which preserves the unity of the church. This rule that can be the creed. Go to page nine. Look at page nine. Okay, you will notice the, you will notice the component, <laughs> components of the creed as we go through this. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, at least what he thought were the ends of the earth at his time, that is to say, all the way to the Persian Gulf, and even beyond, beyond the Persian Gulf, all the way down to the, to the Indus River. They weren't so familiar with China, and Argentina was a mystery to them. <laughs> the church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith, okay. namely, one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's still the first article I read today, this day, of the Nicene Creed. But it's a little more elaborate here. One God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them. And in one Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents and the birth from a virgin, and the passion and the resurrection of the dead, and the ascension into heaven of the flesh of the, of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, as manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father, to gather all things into one, to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth of things under the earth, and every tongue should confess to him that he should execute just judgment towards all, that he may send spiritual evils and the angels who transgressed, uh, transgressed and became apostates together with the ungodly and unrighteous and wicked and profane among men into everlasting fire, but may in the exercise of his grace confer immortality upon the righteous and holy and those who have kept the commandments, and have persevered in his love, some from the beginning and others from their repentance, and may surround them with everlasting glory. That was one sentence. It's, 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 it's worthy of uh, Melville's confidence, man. It's that, it's that kind of sentence. The, the one thing, the one I think about is at least he did not write it in German. <laughs> because you wouldn't get the verb until the very last word. Um, let me just point out something in, in this that I found, I found curious. Notice there that all the Christological assertions, born of the Virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, rose again, will come again in glory, and so forth, all of those Christological propositions are not put in the second article of the Creed, they're put in the third. It's a very curious way it's done. Why? Because, but look how he does it. He says, the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets prophesied all of these things. So he takes all the mysteries of Christ, instead of put, attaching them to the second article of the creed, he inserts them in the third article of the creed under the heading, who spoke by the prophets. Very curious. I don't know any other authors done that, 
but but I really is. It's a neat way of it's a neat way of doing. It. But but notice there, all the components that we know as the creed are still there. Okay, now look at your outline. What do you have? What do you have in your outline next, uh, Theophany? Um, the apostolic churches. The apostolic churches, capital C. The apostolic churches. Arabic numeral one. The older churches. Okay. Now Irenaeus's teaching about the authority of the apostolic churches is well known. That is, those churches that individual apostles had been responsible for founding. Those churches were fairly well known in antiquity. You find them, you find them listed, they're preoccupied in, in, uh, in Eusebius' church history, where he gives you, up to his own time in the fourth century, he gives you the names of all the bishops of certain churches. First, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Alexandria in Egypt. Rome. And Antioch. Those four. Those four. The special authority of those four churches was recognized in the Council of Nicaea in 325. Council of Nicaea in 325 gave three of those churches a pastoral authority over large bodies of land. And the Council of Nicaea, which Eusebius attended, by the way, Council of Nicaea made the Church of Rome responsible for all of Europe. The Church of Alexandria responsible for all of Africa. The Church of Antioch responsible for all of the East. Jerusalem was simply a, an honorary degree. The, Jerusalem was responsible only for Jerusalem. I'm sort of saying that now because the current the current patriarch of Jerusalem is trying to exercise authority way down in Carter. That belongs to Antioch. Since 325, that's belonged to Antioch. Now, Irenaeus' teaching about the authority of these old churches is well known. Those churches that owe their origin to individual uh, apostles. In addition to the ones we've just mentioned, a special authority fell on the church of Ephesus, the Ephesian church, with the other seven churches of Asia. And remember, that's where Irenaeus is from. I stopped short of uh, running off page 11 tonight, because uh, I'm, I'm going to save that for, but that page 11 will deal with the church, the church of Ephesus, and, and well, the, the Asian church. Let's look at, where am I here?
wait a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Come to the bottom of page nine. I've skipped that. I didn't mean to skip that. Come to the bottom of page nine. It goes right into what we've been talking about. He talks about the one faith with the one creed spread all over to the ends of the earth. Now, what are the ends of the earth to him? Probably Ireland, which is a pretty good place to stop, actually. As I have observed already, the church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. She also believes these points just as if she had one soul and one in the same heart, and she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony, as if she possessed one mouth. For although the languages of this world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition, there's your word again, traditio, parados is in Greek, the import of the tradition is one and the same. For the churches if we have been planted in Germany, now here, look at that interesting, he's going above the, going above the Donau, the, what, what the, the Romans call the Danubium, the Danube, he's going north of that. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those which have been established in the central regions of the world. What are the central regions of the world? Italy and Greece. <laughs> that's the center of the world, Italy and Greece. And frankly, I don't think that's a bad way of looking at it. That's pretty much the center of my world, Italy and Greece. But as the sun, that creature of God, is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shines everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to, the, to a knowledge of the truth. Now will any one of the rulers of these churches, however highly gifted he may be in point of eloquence, teach doctrines different from those, for no one is greater than the master, nor on the other hand will he who is deficient in power of expression inflict injury on the tradition. It doesn't make a difference the gifts of the preacher. It's going to be the same message. For the faith being ever one and the same, neither does one who is able at great length to discourse regarding it make any addition to it, nor one who can say but little diminish it. Okay, that's the text I skipped on here. I apologize for that. Now let's turn over, page 10. We're going to talk about the the uh, the, apost the, uh, the apostolic tradition and the, the tradition of the apostolic churches. This is from Irenaeus against the Heresies, Book Three, Chapter One. We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those those through whom the gospel has come down to us which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed them down to us in, in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. 
For it is unlawful to assert that they prepared before, pardon me, that they, pardon me, that they preached before they possessed perfect knowledge, as some do even venture to say, boasting themselves as the improvers of the apostles. That's, that's, an, that's an idea to hang on to, by the way. He clearly does not believe in the development of doctrine, or at least in the development of dogma. It's, it's, it's the same pure faith in this notion that is going to be it's going to be elaborated so that something will know something new that we didn't know before that new truths will be discovered within it we're not known to the apostles that's 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 an idea you start to find in people like Cardinal Newman that idea in fact the Roman Catholic Church back in the 19th century rejected that idea for after our Lord arose from the dead they were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down and were filled from all his gifts and had perfect knowledge, Rictus Pleurofloria, uh, an expression from the New Testament itself, they departed to the ends of the earth, preaching the glad tidings of the good things from God to us and proclaiming the peace of heaven to men who indeed do all equally and individually possess the gospel of God. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. There's your earliest source for the gospel of Matthew being written in either Hebrew or Aramaic. While Peter and Paul, while preaching at Rome, laid the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, interpres Petri, interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned on his breast, did himself preach a gospel during his residence at Ephesus and Asia. There's your witness of the four gospels. We've had that elsewhere in Irenaeus. When he talked about the, the, four, the four living creatures from the of the book of Revelation, remember? Clearly, within the normal, uh, general norms of the apostolic succession of the ordained ministry, Irenaeus sees a special place in those churches whose contact with the apostles was more immediate. From this text, and the one is going to follow it a bit later, we learn something of great importance. The various churches were already preserving the registries of their ordinations, precisely with a view to demonstrating the apostolic succession of their bishops. You just can't say that you're, if you're derived from the apostle, you have to have written verification for it. <laughs> the point of Irenaeus' argument against the Gnostics is that the relationship of the Catholic churches with the apostles is a matter of public record, a testimony that's open to public scrutiny. In the later debates of the English Reformation, the Catholic party would argue that the apostolic succession 
was itself a matter of the faith, while the Protestant party contended that it was not. It seems to me that Irenaeus does not make it part of the deposit of the faith. That would be a circular argument. In other words, he does not hold the apostolic succession beyond the level, save of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity or the Incarnation. He does not make it one of the mysteries of the faith. It's, there, it's, it's a, a bulwark in defense of the faith. For Irenaeus, the apostolic succession was simply a matter of record and record keeping, a standard safeguard by which the church maintained the archives of its history. The chronicling of the bishops was and is very much analogous to that of the chronicling and archives of kings. It has to do with legitimacy. Legitimacy. A bishop or a priest who could not show that he stood in the ordination line of the apostles was simply not to be regarded as a bishop or a priest. And he had no right to be exercising these ministries in the church. That's why hanging, hanging next door in the building next door over my desk is a certificate signed by Bishop Antoon that he did in fact ordain me. As Father Doug used to say, I am one cubit away from an apostle. <laughs> one cubit away from an apostle. Now, we recall that Clement of Rome taught exactly the same thing prior to the year 100. This was the absolute and unbroken tradition of the church during the first millennium and a half, a tradition and understanding against which there was no dissenting voice raised at all for 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, there was no disagreement on this. This is the significance of the constant attention Eusebius gave to the tables of the apostolic succession in his, in his ecclesiastical history. By the way, you can get the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius in, in a, a paperback edition. It's, it's very easy reading, very easy reading. Over and over, as Eusebius come to the individual bishops of Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome, he says that such and such a bishop stands at such and such a rank from the apostles, fifth from the apostles, sixth from the apostles, seventh from the apostles. He lists it that way. When Irenaeus goes on to give the list of the bishop of Rome, he intimates that he could have done the same for other churches as well, but he says he, he's just going to stick to Rome in order not to be tedious. He says he's restricting himself to Rome for purposes of convenience, and because what he sees as a special preeminent preeminence of that particular church. Okay. Then comes his list, his famous list of the bishops of Rome. And I've got that one for you on the back of page 10. I'm on, on page 10. Okay. 
his famous list of the bishops of Rome. Any questions so far? All right. This text follows, is the one that follows immediately on the text we, with which we began the class. We began the class with 3-2, this is 3-3. Three, three. Okay. The blessed apostles, then, having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the episcopate, there's your first bishop of Rome, Linus. Of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistle to Timothy. So Linus is mentioned in the New Testament itself. To him succeeded Anacletus, sometimes simply known as Cletus, by the way. Linus, Cletus, Clement. To him succeeded Anacletus, and after him in the third place from the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. Okay. And where do you find Clement in the New Testament? Epistle of the Philippians. Chapter 4 of Philippians, who mentions Clement. This man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing, namely echoing in his ears and their traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone, for there were many still remaining who had received instruction from the apostles. In the time of Clement, no small dissension having occurred among the brethren at Corinth, the church in Rome dispatched a most powerful letter to the Corinthians. Okay. Now, he, knows that, he knows that letter. He knows that letter. Exhorting them to peace, renewing their faith and declaring the tradition which he had lately received from the apostles, proclaiming the one God omnipotent, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of man, who brought on the deluge and called Abraham, who led the people from the land of Egypt, spoke with Moses, set forth the law, sent the prophets, and who had prepared the fire for the devil and his angels. From this document, you notice this, that letter was sent from Rome to Corinth. How is it that a bishop in Gaul who came from Asia Minor has a copy of it? Well, it was copy. And by the way, in the uh, in, in uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, from Clement of Alexandria, we know that Clement's letter to the Corinthians was in the New Testament down in Alexandria. They put it right there with the letters of Paul. The church decided not to do that, but it's interesting one of the churches did that. From this document, which is available in paperback and is online, he doesn't say that, but he would have if he thought of it. From this document, whoever chooses to do so may learn that he, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was preached by the churches and may also understand the apostolic tradition of the church. Since his, uh, this epistle is of older date than these men who are now propagating falsehood and who conjure into existence another God beyond the creator and maker of all existing things. To this Clement there succeeded Evaristus, Alexander, 
following Everestus, then six from the apostles, Sixtus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Were, were, they, were they already taking special names when they were, when they were bishops of Rome? Were they already, I don't know. They do now. They do now. They take, take a new name when they become bishop of Rome. Uh, in the Orthodox Church, you often take a new name when you're ordained. I wanted to take a name, but somebody said she would cause confusion. She would not let me take a new name. I think I wanted to be called Father Lancelot. No, I'm just kidding. I or Galahad, Father Galahad. Sixth of the apostles, Sixtus, was appointed. After him, Telephorus who was gloriously martyred. Then Hyginus, after him Pius, then after him Anicetus, Soter having succeeded Anicetus, Eleutherius does now, in the twelfth place in the apostles, hold the inheritance of the episcopate. In this order and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition of the apostles and the preaching of truth have come down to us. And this is the most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. There's your famous list. What can you say about the Church of Rome on the basis of... Uh, basis of this text. This text is very much used by Roman Catholic apologists, of course, to bolster their concept of papal authority. Roman Catholic apologists claim that St. Peter was the first bishop of Rome. Okay? Notice that, Clem that, that Irenaeus does not say that. He doesn't say Peter was the first bishop of Rome. But Linus is the first bishop of Rome, put there by the apostolic authority of Peter and Paul. So there's no personal, you know, Peter ordaining the next man and so forth. Nonetheless, we do know, notice that Clement of Rome is certainly exercising a pastoral concern for the Church of Corinth in the first century. How far were those early churches willing to go in submitting to the authority of the Bishop of Rome? I don't see any evidence at all, none whatsoever. I see the Bishop of Rome as having an authority they recognized, and they're willing to discuss things with him. When he thinks they're wrong, he'll tell them that. If they're not persuaded of it, they won't, they won't listen. Exactly what amount of authority did they believe they had relative to the whole church? Any or none at all. The problem I see is that we tend to examine that in terms of canonicity and legality. And I just don't see, I simply do not see that whatsoever. Uh, Clement's letter to the Corinthians was held in high regard, and the comments of Irenaeus 
later on in the year 180 testify to it. But how much authority and what sort of authority? Notice that when, when Clement argues, because we took this last year, didn't we? Over a year ago. When Clement argues with the Corinthians, he never cites his own authority. He always cites sacred scripture. You must stop doing that because Moses said it was a bad idea. You must not do that because when when Dathan and Abiram did it, the earth opened up and swallowed them. That's why you must not do it. This question, how much authority, what sort of authority, could only be answered as it arose. And it only arose as Rome began to exercise more authority beyond the borders of Rome. As Rome tested out its authority, the other churches responded. A crisis on this point arose even prior to the year 200. It was the so-called Quartodeciman controversy. The, bishop, the Roman bishop in question was Victor I, who was Pope of Rome from 189 to 199. The Quartodeciman the controversy is the first test of Roman authority. When we deal with this, however, I want that text in front of you. I will, I will have that with the uh, Eusebius's description of the uh, of the Quartodeciman controversy. I want that you have that text in front of you, we, and this is a good place to break anyway. Any questions? So, can we cover the special case of Rome tonight? Then? Or we're still going on to that. We're we 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 dealing with the special yeah. case of Rome. I think we are. Let me look at my notes. I think that's what I'm on right now. But I want to I want to run off for you uh, the text, the Paschal question. The Quartodeciman controversy, I've, I've introduced you to this before, but just to give you a, a recap, a quick recap. This question, when, how do you determine the date of Pascha? The churches of Asia, that is to say, the churches founded by Paul and John, with their major disciple Polycarp, they followed the Jewish calendar. So the Passover, Pascha, could be on any day of the week. Now, we have never heard, actually heard anybody ever speak of Easter Tuesday. Rome, in Rome, Victor I makes the claim, no, it's supposed to always fall on a Sunday because it was on a Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. And we got that from Peter and Paul. Now, that was a bone of contention from the year 
150 until it was finally settled by the Council of Nicaea in 325. Rome weighed in on that heavily during the pontificate, the, the ministry, the hierarchy of, uh, of Victor I from 189 to 199. What happened in that controversy? will tell you very clearly what Irenaeus thought about the authority of the Bishop of Rome, how he treated it. Any questions? Okay. Uh, glory to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and through the ages of ages. Amen.